PCA Conversations with Black Voices. Welcome to Between the Pew. Between the Pew is brought to you by African American Ministries. AAM exists to provide ways to support African Americans within the Presbyterian Church in America. What's good, fam? Welcome to another episode of Between the Pew. My name is Janelle Chavis, and I am back on the mic today with Charles McKnight. What's good, bro? Yo, 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 yo. Good to see you again. Uh, even though our hearers can't see us, it's good to see and hear you mm-hmm. on this evening. Yep, yep. And listeners, I know y'all can't see him, but he got the fresh cut today. So nah, just to nah. let y'all know, y'all can imagine that. <laughs> that fresh line uh today we have the pleasure to chop it up with alicia akins yeah (laughs) yeah alicia lives in washington dc she in my neck of the woods she works for a public diplomacy international education exchange program on the East Asia Pacific team. Sis, you're going to have to let us know. You're going to have to break all, all that, that down. <laughs> them a lot of syllables in the words. Go a ahead. A lot of words. I had to enunciate. I had to make sure I got um, all that right. Um, she is also a writer. She is a published author, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yes, she's also a student at Reformed Theological Seminary in D.C., where she is working on her Master's of Arts in Biblical Studies. And on top of all this, she serves her church as a deaconess. So she's doing all the things, y'all. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Welcome, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited. Look, just reading like a little bit about you, I'm like, she got a lot like Black Mm -hmm. excellence at its finest. I can't wait to dig it in with you and kind of hear what who you are and what you got going on in your life. So let's get this thing going, Alicia. Tell the listeners a little bit about who you are, where you're from, where you grew up, uh, what's kind of shaped and and formed you. So I um, am originally from southeastern Virginia, the 757. Oh, uh, really? I'm very proud of. Yes, I'm from Newport News. And okay. um, my <laughs> your husband's from, from that area. Yeah, yep. he's 757. Every time he, he te- every time he speaks at something that I'm at and he mentions where he's from, I yell out 757. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> to show, you know, my support for the Tidewater wow, region. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. So I'm originally from there for the most part, like I, from um, elementary school through uh, high school, I was there. And then <clears throat> I went to college in New Jersey. Um, okay. In college, I got really involved in um, Campus Crusade for Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, after college, I moved to China and I lived there for three years. Um, I lived in Shanghai for a year. I wow. lived in the Gobi Desert for a year. And I lived in Qingdao, which is across from South Korea for a year. Mm. Um, and I learned to speak Chinese and really sort of fell in love with the region. Wow. So um, after three years there, I moved back. Um, I lived in Boston for two years and I went to um, an Asian American church there um, during my mm-hmm. time. And then I moved to Seattle and got my master's degree in China studies. Um, what? And while I was there, I learned, I took two years of Japanese and, um, started very like, like I learned the Korean alphabet, but like, mm. 
it was mainly just like Chinese and Japanese that I was focused on then. Um, and then after, oh, I also studied museums during that time because I was interested in, mm. I had realized that um, before I moved to Asia, all I knew about it was what I had kind of heard about it on the news um, or the very little that I learned about it in school. So I had a lot of misconceptions when I went there. And then I just mm. fell in love with the country and the region. And I thought, I want to help other people um, challenge their stereotypes and mm -hmm. come to understand and appreciate this part of the world uh, in a way that I have and what is the most publicly accessible way to teach people. And so I thought museums might be that. Um, yeah. So that's why I, I paired museums and China studies in grad school. Um, and then um, after grad school in Seattle, um, a job opened up at a museum in Southeast Asia uh, in Laos, uh, which is um, north of um, Cambodia and then between Thailand and Vietnam. Mm. And I lived there for two years working at a museum. Um, and that museum was about different ethnic groups in, um, in Laos. Um, and part of the thing that had, um, had drawn me to China was actually the ethnic diversity there, not the presence of black people, that, but that China had its own sort of ethnic um, issues. And mm. uh, when I lived out in the um, Gobi Desert, there's actually kind of like the Chinese equivalent of a HBCU there. And I, I was really <laughs> curious about like, you know, what Chinese minorities are like. So that's kind of why I went there. So when this museum opened up, in Southeast Asia. I moved there. I lived there for two years. Um, didn't see my family for two years, basically. Wow. Uh, um, the first year I was there, I wasn't allowed to go to church. Um, uh, my second year, wow. I went to a small expat church and then, um, I moved from there to DC seven years ago. All right, Alicia, um, I'm, I want to go, I want to go back before we get even further down mm -hmm. the road and we start talking about <laughs> DC, let's talk about Asia. Yes. Let's talk about China. Mm -hmm. Let's okay. talk about this black woman from Newport news somehow developed an interest and intrigue and affection for our brothers and sisters on the Asian continent. Mm -hmm. What was the beginning of that? What was the Genesis <laughs> of all of yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I originally called China the instant conversation killer. Um, I was <laughs> not interested in China to begin with, like not at all. Um, when I had, was very young, someone was like, you know, if you dig too deep in the ground, you'll end up in China. And I like never dug in the ground again. <laughs> and then when I was in college, I had a friend who was very, um, he had been studying Chinese um, for a while and he was trying to convince people to move there um, with him and he would bring it up to me all the time and I was like I'm not interested in this I studied music as an undergrad um, hmm. and I was going to be a music teacher and so I was like why am I going to go to China there aren't black people there um, mm -hmm. I don't speak the language um, this seems like a big detour from any plans that I have for my life and so like he would have me over for dinner and it would be Chinese food. We went to the zoo. <laughs> he took me to see the pandas first. Subtle hint. And like, yeah, I mean, not even <laughs> not subtle. Not so subtle, like, right? Yeah. Um, all the time. And so I was just like, dude, like I'm not going. And then I read this book called um, Operation China, which is like okay. Operation World, yep. um, which is a book 
uh, that sort of catalogs prayer needs for different parts of the world um, for missions and sort of like looks at the like penetration of the gospel in different countries and things like that. But they had a book just like that for China. Is that the Paul Hathaway? Is that the Paul Hathaway book? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so that was how I first realized there were that there was ethnic diversity in China. And that was really interesting to me to see like, oh, what, what is it like for um, ethnic minorities in other parts of the world? Um, and so that was what really like sort of switched me from being very against, very much against the idea of moving to China and living there um, to being very open to the idea. Mm. And full disclosure, this person who was trying to convince me was my ex-boyfriend. Um, <laughs> okay, I want to say nothing, but I was like, this brother, he up to something. Right. You know, you know, I want to think that he was, you know, but it so, seems like. Yeah, no. Okay. okay. Yeah. Right. There now. So we broke up. Um, I didn't want him to know that he had influenced me. So I was doing my own investigation separately gotcha. into China. And then we broke up at a time that it was like time for me to make a decision. And so I was like, well, I don't want people to think that I'm following him across the world. And I also don't really want to be stuck like in another country with him, even though, you know, China's huge. And so mm-hmm. there's no reason that I would have to see him. Right. Um, so I momentarily was like, oh, I think I'm going to move to Papua New Guinea and translate the Bible instead. Um, and work with Wycliffe. Wait, 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 wait. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> okay, Papua New Guinea. Now, now, is uh, um, where did that come from? Yeah, He's I mean, Alicia, you got to help me. My brain, I'm trying to keep I up. I realize I skipped his. So, the church that I went to in college, I went to a Calvary Chapel college. And one of the things that I am forever indebted to my pastor for is he had a huge heart for missions. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so I was being um, formed spiritually to think a lot about Christianity and other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. And I okay. was like living off of a diet of missionary biographies and was just like really interested in, you know, how much or little the gospel had gotten into different parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of how Wycliffe came onto my radar. Yeah. And then I went to a um, like a an interest meeting that they had out in Portland, my senior year of college. And it seemed interesting. And then like the boyfriend breakup thing happened. And I was like, well, this is what I'm going to do instead of China. Cause my school actually had a partnership with China. Okay. Um, mm. And my ex-boyfriend's ex-girlfriend had been Taiwanese. So that's how that <laughs> sort of all comes together. Gotcha. Um, but the ironic thing is I thought to myself, there's no way I like languages enough to want to spend the rest of my life doing that. And now right. I've like eight languages later. I'm like, <laughs> I wish that I had done that so that I could study languages for my, wow. you know, my whole life. So um, that's how the China thing happened. And um, I really wanted actually specifically, I wanted black people to know more about China because yeah. there's so little, um, interface and uh, interaction between I feel like African Americans and Asian Americans and blacks and um, Asians and I was like oh you know like I wish that there was more 
um, community and fellowship here. So yeah, well, mm-hmm. look, really hope, important to me. Hopefully, we got some black folks listening to this podcast. Hopefully, we got some mm-hmm. Asian brothers and sisters listening to it too. What would be a few things that you would desire for black Christians to know about our brothers and sisters in Asia, and even our black brothers and sisters in Asia as well? But to know about our Asian American um, brothers and sisters, or Asian brothers and sisters. Uh, Asian brothers and sisters specifically, and also I'm very curious just about what um, what you might be able to share with us just about the the black experience in Asia as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's good. Um, So I think that um, especially in China. um, There's, you know, not a lot of very when i lived in the gobi desert there was one other black woman that lived in that city um and everybody thought we were the same person so of course like them, there was like one black person there that's a, that sound like um, seminary that's like <laughs> <seminary. Go ahead. laughs> that's true that's actually in a way in a it did feel like i went from like one place where i was very much the minority to another place being very much the minority mm-hmm. going from asia to the pca mm-hmm. but um I think that um, there's something really beautiful about the faith of um, brothers and sisters. And this isn't just Asia, but in places where Christians aren't the majority and have never held the power. Mm -hmm. And um, it's something worth uh, looking at and investigating and comparing. Um, And also even just Christians who haven't grown up with a lot of comfort. I think a lot of my, a lot of my thinking, I feel like as a Christian has been shaped by being in community with Christians who've been poor and not Mm -hmm. like American poor, but like globally poor Mm -hmm. or who have been um, persecuted or who have never, you know, had the opportunity to have these big elaborate church services that we have here and all of the amenities and yet their Mm -hmm. faith is still very strong and they would be willing to give up any number of things, career, family, marriage, all of that stuff for Christ. So um, I think there's a lot that we can learn from our brothers and sisters in Asia and other Mm -hmm. parts of the world where Christians are persecuted or poor or or things like that. So how mm -hmm. is, how is your experience actually in Asia and China shaped? your interactions with Asian Americans, particularly Chinese Americans uh, here in the States? I learned uh, relatively quickly that there is a difference between Asians and Asian Americans. So like I said, I had come back from Asia and immediately started attending an Asian American church Mm -hmm. and assumed these people also speak the language of, you know, where their um, ancestors are from, which isn't always true. Um, Or they watch television from that part of the world, Mm -hmm. or they feel a deep sense of connection to their um, Asian background more than their American background. But I found that there were some people who were like, I don't still speak Chinese. Like my Mm. parents speak to me, but I can't say anything. I don't watch any of those television shows. I don't know any of those celebrities. Um, I feel more shaped as an American. But one thing that I found really kind of comforting being in that situation was it was like, um, here, here's, here are people who I don't have to convince that being a minority 
comes with being treated differently. Uh, sometimes in um, majority white spaces, right. that's a conversation that needs to be had. But I felt like, I mean, even when I moved to Seattle, I continue, I went to Korean American church for two years there. Um, it, I continued to find common ground with yep. people um, because of our shared experience as minorities, even though there are lots of differences in, you know, the outworkings of stereotypes and prejudice among those two groups. Um, there is some commonality in that I don't have to convince you that I'm treated differently because mm. you yourself are treated differently and mm-hmm. see how that's um, diminished by people who aren't. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Alicia, you are. Um, so we know that there have been some some key people of influence who've kind of helped shape kind of how you saw missions and what you chose to do. We have that pastor who just had a heart for missions that you talked about, you know, maybe that ex-boyfriend influence too. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what um, coming back to the States, what kind of influenced those decisions and then who or what influenced the decision to kind of get you where you are right now? Like when you moved back from Asia, you didn't come straight to DC. So kind of talk about how you, your past led to where you are right now and who were people of influence. Yeah. Um, the first time I came back from Asia, I detoured in Boston and, um, Seattle for school. Uh, the reason that I was in Boston was I wanted to live with someone who had made the adjustment from being an expat to, um, repatriating and my roommate was someone who I knew from China and she'd moved back a year before I had. Um, the second time I moved back was from Southeast Asia and I stayed with my, um, family for about six months looking for a job before I moved to DC, um, seven years ago. And I think, I mean, my family is from Southern Virginia. So DC kind of made sense in terms of like, it's kind of, it's close to family, but not super close to family. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I'd never really been like geographically close to family uh-huh, since yeah. I finished, um, high school. Um, I think one of the, um, an experience I had that shaped me a lot, um, was actually in Thailand at a missions conference. Um, occasionally some Chinese Christians would be um, permitted to attend from the company that I worked with. And these were people who um, hadn't been able to worship out loud um, without concern for their safety. Mm. Um, And I sang in the choir And so I was standing on stage looking out at all of these people who were really like getting to worship the Lord without any inhibitions for the first time in their lives. And just seeing the sheer joy Mm. um, and tears coming down their face and realizing that like we complain about music styles or this or that. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, these people are just happy that they can rate Uh, their voices and their hands to God. mm. Um, And so I feel like experiences like those, I mean, it's not a person, but like Chinese yeah. Christians, if you could say like as a, as a whole, were very influential in um, causing me to rethink what I, what is important about church yeah. and um, what are things that I should 
complain about or be picky over things like mm-hmm. that. Um, mm. And then I think my sort of recent development has, I've been heavily influenced, I think just by my opportunity to attend seminary. I'm in my mm. fifth year or I'm in my fourth year now and have just learned so much from being able to sit under good instruction. Mm. Um but I think that it's been really valuable to have had all of the other experiences that I've had to right. know that um, my instruction is really, really valuable, but it's, it's from a particular perspective. What perspective is it from are... Alicia? Alicia, what perspective <laughs> is it from? Um, <clears throat> I think in probably any American evangelical church, you're going to get people talking and teaching whose only thought is how does this work for upper middle class white Americans? Mm-hmm. Uh, or how does the gospel work for upper upper class middle white um upper class? <laughs> yeah, we got gotcha. you white mm-hmm. Americans. And yep. um <laughs> and so like oftentimes I'm thinking when I hear sermons or teaching, like, does that work for the poorest of the poor? Does that work mm-hmm. for places where people are persecuted? Does that work for places where Christians are in jail and don't have access to the Bible? Does that work for places who are experiencing civil war and will never know peace in their entirety of their lives? You know, wow. like I'm thinking about those those people when I'm thinking about what I'm being taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking about if the conclusions that people are coming to are true for everyone. And if they're not true for everyone... And I know that God has concern for the least of these. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Are they, to what extent are they true? To what extent are they true? Um, So um, I think that if I had never lived in other places and never been exposed to Christians from other um, uh, backgrounds and nationalities and things like that, that I would just be happy to have a message that worked for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Not realizing that like, the Bible wasn't written just for me and people like me. And I'm very yeah. far removed yeah. from like the original people of the Bible. Was That's for. good. But, but, but Alicia, let me ask you this question. I don't know what your um, bank account looks like, but um, you could possibly also not be, I know you're not a white person mm-hmm. and you may not be an upper class in that kind of sense person. Mm-hmm. So do you think that you don't think that you would have still not had to uh, kind of filter it through how this applies to people that don't fit in that specific category, just based on your own personal experiences here in the States? I think definitely, I think definitely um, that that's true. I, but I think that there are layers to that. And I think that maybe, maybe I have extra layers from my Mm -hmm. experience abroad that I wouldn't have had just from my experience as a black person, to be honest, Mm -hmm. I think that, um, being a black person, being a black Christian gives you an extra sort of set of lens lenses to look at the world and an ability to like have, uh, broadened margins when you're Mm -hmm. looking at, um, just the world in general, being able to see people who are on the outside because you yourself are on the outside. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I consider that a gift. Um, and I, I sometimes feel like, man, it is really hard for people who are on the inside to learn that. 
Um, mm-hmm. like, and that is definitely like supernatural <laughs> thing when it happens, but I feel like it's sort of been baked into our story and our DNA as black people to have that ability. Um, and I think that it's a precious ability and I think it's, you know, something that God has. And I think in that way, we reflect a certain aspect of his, of who he is by being able to see people on the margins more easily because God is a God who sees people on the margins, you know, Amen. there's no such thing as a margin for him. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. sees it all. So, well, now that seminary has entered the conversation, how did you, what led to your decision to go to seminary? Mm-hmm. What made you want to go? So I had, when I was in college, I had thought about going to seminary, but I didn't think that I could afford it. Um, and mm-hmm. I continued to think that I couldn't afford it um, pretty much up until um, the Sunday that I got, I guess, commissioned, uh, not commissioned, commissioned as a deaconess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, yeah. commissioned. That's right. <laughs> like, is that the right word? Um, <laughs> one of the elders at my church came up to me and was like, how would you um, like to take a seminary class? And I was like, oh, I that would be like really great. And he was like, well, how would you like to take a lot? And I was like, well, I don't know. It depends on like <laughs> yeah. what I could afford. And he actually was also a, this is not an ex-boyfriend. Just to be clear. <laughs> okay. We've distinguished. <laughs> he was um, also a student at RTS. And so he mm. had actually talked to the president of RTS about, he, he'd said like, there's a woman at my church that seems really sort of theologically astute and curious and, um, would there be any funding opportunities that we might, you know, that the school might be able to provide her to make it um, affordable for her to attend? Mm-hmm. And then he talked to the session because he's an elder and asked them if they had any um, funds that they could use to support it. So I'm, I've been able to go because it's been like largely subsidized between the school and my church. Um, awesome. If not, I wouldn't be able to afford it, but Price wow. um, yeah, I was um, really, really grateful for that opportunity. Yeah. And it sort of came at the same time that I was doing more writing. And I thought this would be a really good opportunity for me to get um, some good tools that I can draw from in um, interpreting and applying the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Let me just, so. let me just pause and just, first of all, um, just give a shout out to RTS, the RTS system and mm-hmm. um, RTS um, up in the Washington area in particular. And, um, you know, I'm an RTS Charlotte grad. Um, mm-hmm. Shout out to mm-hmm. the RTS Charlotte folks. Yep. <laughs> and I got me a little money to go to. Uh, uh-huh. and, and I would not have been able to go if they didn't hook a brother up. But <laughs> I, I think this is just another clear reminder that um, we have so many brilliant, gifted uh, people that are in our pews, right? Um, that have unique gifts, unique callings in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and if given the opportunity, not only would desire and like to get some seminary training, uh, but could also be benefited by it and benefit the church even more effectively than what they are right now by being yeah. able to have that experience. So what you just heard is our sister, Alicia, that was wanting to go, but it took someone at the church to open up that opportunity for her. And what I'm looking at right now is a book by her called Invitations to Abundance, Mm -hmm. How the Feast of the Bible Nourish Us Today. You wrote that book, didn't Mm -hmm. you? I did. I did. Her name's on it. Her name is on this book. This is the, and I started reading it and this thing is good, Alicia. This thing 
Mm. <laughs> I mean, the way that it's laid out, the format and everything. We're going to get to talking more about the book. Let's um, talk about it. You want to go ahead and talk about it? Well, what I want to, what I do want to hear connecting it to the seminary deal is how was your seminary experience and how has your seminary experience kind of informed uh, your thinking as it relates to a lot of things that you're laying out in this particular book? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of the best things that I think seminary has um, given me is um, comfort with asking questions of the Bible. Hmm. Like I think before I used to read it and then just kind of, you know, read more and read more. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I didn't bring um, an inquisitiveness or a sense of investigation to it. Um, I wasn't trying to uncover everything that might be there. Um, And so I feel like one of my professors in particular, um, one of the exercises he has us do or assignments um, is we have to write um, questions for each chapter of all of the books that are covered um, in that um, class session. So like what kind of questions? when I took the, he says anything, it can be, it can anything. be a question. Mm. Yeah. Any question about the text that you have, why is this person here? What's their background? How does this connect to something I read in another book? Um, what is the meaning of this grammatically? Is there any significance to this? Um, it could be application questions. What does this mean for me? Like, is this word used the same way here as it's used somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Um, all like anything, everything is fair game, um, to ask for this. Um, so like if, you know, taking the epistles for each chapter, I have to, as I'm reading, just come up with as many questions as I can ask the text. And, um, so getting into that habit of not just sort of skimming, I I guess, Mm -hmm. or like looking for like the nice sound bites that make me feel good, um, is like taking a deeper dive. Um, and investigating more. Um, and so that has been really helpful for me. And I remember, um, one day also in class, I mean, my professors are really, I have really enjoyed the professors that I've had. Um, but this idea of, um, God being transcendent and imminent, like being big, but also intimate, Um, has Mm. been a very big in my thinking as well. And I think, you know, in the book, which we'll talk more about later, this idea of God being present, God's imminence, Uh, I think is something that's lost to a lot of Christians uh that they think that he's just, you know, out there big. Um, There's a a long timeline that he's working on, but doesn't care about the details, isn't close to us. And I really wanted people to see that he's both. Amen. Um, and that there's beauty in the fact that he's both. Mm. Ooh, that's good. That's good. What gave you the idea? I know I don't even know if we want to talk about the book right now, but since we're here, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're here now. What gave you the idea to write about invitations to abundance? Um, two years or, or so after moving to D.C., um, I lost my job. And, um, I was out of work for about 15 months Mm. and, um, there was, uh, a month that there were two months that I couldn't pay rent. There was one of those months, my church paid my rent and one of them, my mom paid my rent. And there was, um, 
a month that I didn't have money for food. And um, mm-hmm. I was kind of just going around my house, finding coins and stuff that I could take to the Dollar Tree down the store or down oh, the street and get the cheap, the cheapest box of junk food that I could find. It was like the heaviest yeah. thing that like mm-hmm. fit what coins I could find around my house. Mm. Wow. And that was in November. And I remember not like telling my friends about it, just kind of struggling, like having, oh, I'll have half an utter butter today. For lunch, mm, oh my goodness dinner, you know yeah um nutter butters are good though but they not are really good but 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 alicia you wrote a book on abundance while you were experienced the yeah. lack thereof yeah oh, so man. the invitations to abundance came from that period of i, I wasn't writing it like at the same time, but gotcha. I wrote, I was inspired by the fact that I had experienced abundance during a personal time of scarcity. Wow. Um, and so that's why I sort of wanted to write about um, mm-hmm. that idea. Cause I think the prosperity gospel mm. um, gives off a wrong impression about w- what it means for God to be good to us in our mm. lives at all times, but especially I hear a lot of people say like, this person was a good person. I don't understand why this bad thing happened to them. Or like, Mm -hmm. where was God when such and such thing happened? Mm -hmm. And, um, I want people to think more. I want God has something better for us than that kind of prosperity. Yeah. Uh, And I, I think he has abundance, you know? And so, um, and that works for people who are on the margins and who live in countries That's where right. there exactly. will always be civil war and where they will never, you know, have enough money for all of the things that they need. And so that's sort of why I wanted to explore that theme. Well, mm-hmm. Alicia, w- would you allow me to read kind of the summary of the book uh, yeah. that is on the back of the book? Would that Go be okay? It. Yeah. All right. Um, so the, the title of the book, again, is Invitations to Abundance, How the Feast of the Bible Nourish Us Today. Mm-hmm. And on the back, it says, what do the feast of the Bible reveal about our place in today's tired world? In short, everything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, on the back, it says, from Genesis through Revelation, redemption history is captured through feast. Through them, God calls his people to commemorate mercy, delight, in grace and commune with him and with one another. In the process, he proves he doesn't ration his rich, soul-satisfying love towards us, mm. but instead lets it overflow. That's a mm, good mm, word right there. Mm, that uh, is. That's just the first little blurb. <laughs> Let me keep going. Invitations to Abundance brings to life the festivities described in the Bible and illuminates how relevant they remain in a modern world defined by isolation and disillusionment. When your heart needs encouragement, these wondrous Mm. celebrations remind you why, where, and how you can find security, unity, and Mm. hope. Each Mm -hmm. chapter in this particular book seats us at a unique feast from scripture, from the well-known to the less familiar, and considers how you can respond worshipfully as a partaker of these celebrations. Invitations to Abundance shows you how to reciprocate God's initiating kindness and what it means to live knowing God's table 
is spread before you. Mm. That's a whole that's a whole word. I'm ready to sing the benediction. I know. The offering plate. There's yeah. a benediction in the book. Have you gotten to the end? I haven't That's gotten like to the end yet, That's like my favorite sir. part. There's a benediction. Oh, there's a benediction. Okay. So, so listen, <laughs> I, I, got a, I got a ton of questions. This isn't, you know, the purpose of this particular uh, format that we have with Between the Pew is we really just want to introduce yes. the world to mm-hmm. Alicia. Uh, however, I, 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 I got so many questions mm-hmm. related to this book, even from what I just read. Uh, one question I want to ask you is you studied all these feasts in the scriptures. Was there one particular feast that you were like, man, we <laughs> got to bring this joint back? Like we need to, we need to maybe think about in our Christian tradition incorporating this particular type of feast in the regular rhythm of our Christian experience. Were there any? Um, this is gonna seem like a strange answer, uh, but I would say the feast of wisdom. Because okay. I feel like tell, wisdom tell, is tell the people tell the people about tell the, the people. feast of wisdom. Tell what first of all, what chapter is the feast of wisdom? Do you I remember? I think it's eight. Let me look. Maybe <laughs> seven or eight. Um, you talking about the feast of understanding? No, the one that's uh from Nehemiah. It should be Lady Wisdom. There's a feast. Lady Wisdom's feast. Yes, wisdom throws a feast. Chapter six. Chapter six. All right. So <laughs> tell us about there we the, go. The, the feast that wisdom throws and why you feel like uh, that would be a particularly helpful feast or at least a passage of scripture for American Christians to sit up in for a little hmm. while. Yeah. So I was really, really excited about that chapter um, because I feel like when people think of feasts in the Bible, they don't think of Proverbs nine and lady wisdom and lady folly throwing a feast. Like, right. Right. It's kind of a thing that you maybe remember hearing once, but then forget that you ever heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that wisdom is an area where that is sorely, um, needed and lacking in our right. time that yeah. there are people who are quick to argue, um, that there are a lot of people who think that they um, don't need to be taught, um, that there is, um, like, in the book, I talk about essentially, like, the people who choose Wisdom's Feast are the ones who know that they're simple. Um, and so there's, like, a lack of humility, and I feel like wisdom leads to humility, and it leads to um peacekeeping and it leads to those things. But one of the specific illustrations that I use um, is when I talk about one of the dishes at her table being rebuke. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like we do rebuke wrong, mm-hmm. um, both giving it and receiving it. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like a, you know, a death sentence to have someone tell you that you were wrong. Yes. Um, and it can take a lot of courage to tell other people when they have um, wandered from the way. Um, and I think that even in my own church experience, um, there are people myself included that could benefit from rebuke and can be led to grow. And if we we could see it as a joyful thing and as a part of a celebration of what God has for us, that like God's goodness to me sometimes look like, sometimes looks like correction for my brothers and sisters and God's goodness to my brothers and sisters sometimes looks like correction for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
believing that we can be used by God in that way as a part of a celebration of wisdom that he has to give to us, um, I think would help people be both more bold and more loving in their giving of rebuke and uh, more humble and receptive to receiving it. Wow. That's good. That's good. And, and listeners, there's a lot more of that good stuff in this book (laughs) and we'll, and we'll make sure Alicia tells us how that book can get into your hands. Charles is holding it up. So, (laughs) so just like, just so y'all know people who are listening to this, Alicia, thank you for that. And definitely before we get out of here, we want you to let us know how, um, we can, we can get our hands on that book. Um, we do want to hear a little bit about how you got into the PCA and what influenced that decision. Why did you choose to go to the church that you're at now? Um, how is the church that you're at now and um, all in between? So let us know a little bit about what what brought you to the PCA. I was originally afraid of Presbyterianism. Not because I knew anything about it, but I think because I had an image in my mind of it, maybe a little Mm. bit just like even the bad image I had of China, but I just am a person who has bad images. Yeah. What was that? What was that? That image, Alicia? I think I thought of it as like stuffy and traditional Mm -hmm. and, um, I I went to a Presbyterian church one time in Boston and they had like a string quartet and the bulletin they had a like the hymns written out and like the the like different divisions of like alto and tenor and stuff and like wow. mm-hmm. I was a music ad major so like I could do that but I was like I don't want that at church like that's uh, not like the church experience that I'm after yeah so I think since then I was just like well they're kind of cold and, um, formal and stuffy. And so, um, I, I didn't look them out, but I wasn't intentionally trying to stay away. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the church that I went to in Seattle, that was a Korean American church was PC U- USA. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that until like a month before I left. Like I saw a booklet on the table that was like, what is Presbyterianism? I was like, oh gosh, I've been going to this Presbyterian (laughs) church and I didn't even know it. (laughs) So then when I um, moved back to the States after living in Southeast Asia, moved to DC, um, I was staying at a friend's house um, in um, like close to Chinatown. And I had made a short list of churches that I was interested in checking out. from a bunch of different, um, denominations. I had like gone on their website, looked at their leadership, seen, you know, what their mission statements were. What were you looking for? What were you looking for, Alicia? Like when you were going through these sites, what were the the little Mm -hmm. checks? Yeah. I was looking for solid teaching. Um, I was looking for evidence of some diversity of, uh, with people, like I would go to their Facebook pages and look at the photo albums and see like, are there any black people in these photos? Mm -hmm. Um, I was looking for, um, something, you know, sometimes people have websites nowadays that like were built in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Seems like it. (laughs) And it's like, what? Like, that's not a Mm -hmm. good thing. Um, so some sense of like, 
an effective way to communicate with their mm-hmm. audience. And one thing that actually really um, s- stuck out to me about Grace DC was I moved to uh, DC in um, 2014, um, shortly after the Michael Brown shootings. And yeah. on the um, Facebook page, they were having a prayer vigil for that. And that's mm. probably the main reason that it ended up on my list. Okay. Um, when I got here, the first Sunday that I was here, I was like, well, let me check out these churches. And Grace DC happened to be the first church or the church that was closest to the couch I was sleeping on. (laughs) So that's where I went first. And then at the service, some people um, invited me out to dinner afterward. And then at dinner, they invited me to their community group. And then that weekend was the fall retreat and they invited me to the fall retreat. (laughs) And so I went to the fall retreat. Um, And then like three weeks after fall retreat, they were like, we're actually looking for a new small group leader. Um, would you be interested? Wow. <laughs> like, I told them like, cause I had just come back from living in Laos for two years where I had one year where I couldn't go to church at all. And another year where um, I was just having like, we'd have monthly meetings at an expat's house. And mm. um, I didn't feel like I was my strongest then. I was like, I don't know if I am the best person person for this, mm-hmm. but I love small groups and I love leading them. Right. I've led them before. Um, so I said, yes. And then you have to be a member to be a small group leader. So then I became a member <laughs> <laughs> and that all happened like in the first month and a half that I was at the church. So wow. that's sort okay. of how I never had a, I never even visited any of the churches. I was about to ask, did you go to any never, other church? No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, so well, this Okay, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, I'm the shout out king. So I I would be remiss. That he is. (laughs) If I did not shout out the Grace Mosaic Network and the amazing ministry they're doing. Oh, I love. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I've been to their services since then. Like I have gone to some other churches since. And um, I think a part of the reason why I was intentional about staying at downtown kind of goes back to my experience in China. I like, I was at LDR a couple, like the last time that they had it. And Mm -hmm. I told someone that I lived in DC and they were like, Oh, do you go to Russ's church? And I was like, no, they're like, Oh, do you go to Duke's church? And and I was like, no, Oh, they were like, Oh, you go to the white one. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I'm at the the white congregation and it's not, (laughs) it's not wrong, but like, they, they kind of stepped to you sideways. <laughs> I would have, I mean, I'm glad you were that sanctified was a little, that right? Because you would have been justified <laughs> to get in the stank eye and walk away. So, um, God, you know, God bless whoever made that comment, but go ahead. Yeah. I, one, one thing that's important to me is like, before I had gone to that church, actually, I didn't have any conservative friends. Like mm-hmm. I had gone to church in Boston and Seattle and there and like no conservative people. Right. <laughs> right. Almost. And so like, it's kind of weird. Cause a lot of like when I was in college, a lot of people would be like, Oh, you're not conservative. How can you call yourself a Christian? And then are I, you talking about politically conservative? Politically Let's conservative. Clarify. Let's clarify. Politically conservative. Yeah. Got you. So yeah. you're talking about um, rhinos versus donkey. 
type yes. of conservative. Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't have any I didn't have any Republican friends before I, moved a, to I understand uh-huh. what that means. Okay, go so, ahead. Um but I realized that I myself had a lot of um prejudice uh, mm. towards white people and towards Republicans. And mm-hmm. I wanted to work that out in community with those people. Wow. Um, and so I, I mean, yeah. I knew that other churches were maybe more diverse and there might be more people like me there, but I, my first community group was like a haven of um, other people who were politically liberal. But then after that group sort of disbanded as people moved away and things like that, I found the most conservative group that I could join that had no black people in it, that had like people who worked for Fox and RNC and stuff like that mm. in the group. And I was like, this intentionally, is wanted- yeah, intentionally. You did this on purpose. I- I did this on purpose. <laughs> I, like, I want to be in this group because I want to learn how to love these people well and love them for who they are rather than the caricatures that I have of them. And I want Mm. them to see that there is a black politically uh, liberal person who's theologically sound and can go toe to toe with them on scripture and still, you know, (laughs) living a kind of life that um, follows after Christ. So that was really important. Alicia, you, you wrote an article, um, so Alicia also writes for United We Pray. Is that, is yes, that right, right mm-hmm. Alicia? And I and I, so I, I clicked um, uh, on that site and was looking at some of your articles. And one of them you wrote was called Christ's Body Broken for Deniers of Racism. And I feel like the if you're listening, go look that up and read it, because I, I, I um, was convicted a by mm. that article for one, like deeply. So, but what you wrote in it is, is kind of like what you're saying now, like your the desire to seek out, although that wasn't a part of you seeking out, wasn't a part of that article, but seeking out people who think differently than you who right. present, who present differently than you, but realizing that, um, they're broken people, just like, you're a broken person. Christ died for us all. Mm-hmm. And so that's just like to the gut to me right now. Cause I'm the, I'm the opposite in so many ways. Like I'm like running yeah. towards the people that make me feel comfortable, you uh-huh. know? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just uh, super encouraged and convicted by what you're saying, but yeah, yeah, go ahead. Tell us, tell us um, a little bit about how that experience was as you are going toe to toe. So it was interesting to, get to make friends with people who I thought that I wouldn't be friends with before and to mm-hmm. um, be able to care for them as people first. Um, but then also to have honest conversations with them about like, Oh, you know, you said this thing and this is how, what you said um, impacted me. And so I had an opportunity mm. one to like, build real relationships, but I also had an opportunity to advocate for myself and for other people who are like me um, because there was trust there. Um, I feel like people don't listen to people they don't trust. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so having that, that foundation of trust made it easier for me to say like, you know, you said this thing that's uncomfortable or it even makes, um, some of them feel more comfortable coming to me, asking questions about something that they 
heard in the news or um, uh, something that they read. Um, and I, I think it has been helpful for both. Um, it's been mutually helpful um, in understanding where other people are coming from. I might not necessarily agree uh, right. with the conclusions that other people come to, um, but being able to see people as more than just the conclusions we come to. And, Amen. You know, being able to see other people as, you know, this is going back to that article. It's like Christ died for both of us. Like yeah. he, di- and he right. didn't just buy, die for us individually. Like, okay, died for Alicia, died for this person, but like died so that we could be united mm-hmm. um, and that there could be union and felt true fellowship there. Um, and so I'm, I want to pursue that it's, um, does that mean that I'm never tired <laughs> or never right. just like, I was thinking that I was like, my people exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it does get exhausting. And mm-hmm. if I'm honest, I'm sort of at a, I'm a little bit exhausted point now. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like I have, um, I think my experience in China prepared me well to mm-hmm. be, to take on this role in different environments Amen. where mm-hmm. I'm the only one. And cause like in, in China, um, my white peers would get a lot of attention, but I got the most attention. People right. would like take pictures of me yep. and always <laughs> touching me. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm on an elevator and I feel somebody touch me and I'm like, who touched yeah, me? I feel right. the power went out of me. <laughs> you, you were good when I would have been like, hold up, hold up, son. We don't do that. Uh-uh. But I, I thought to myself then I might be the only black person that this Chinese person ever sees in their life yeah that's because i want them that's because you holy alicia i don't (laughs) care if i'm the only black person ever seen. and i'm i'm like i want them to go home and tell their family about the wonderful experience that they had with the black person reverses all of the things that they beautiful come on man look i got my little t-shirt on tonight that says ida maya rosa fanny Fanny lou Harriet and Sojourner, they need to put Alicia at the bottom. They do. Of they need to put Alicia at the bottom of this. Mm-hmm. I'm serious. You're doing well, the you Lord's know, work. That is. I mean, hearing all of this, and I know that it's been challenging in many ways for you uh, to put yourself in this space that is uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, the, the reality is still the fact that it's been a still sounds like a fruitful experience to you. It's such a blessing and it's not accidental, I don't think, nor incidental. And so again, shout out King. I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out Reverend Holberg and mm. uh, the rest of the team over there, Reverend Park and Reverend Russell uh, that you guys got over there right now. And um, I-, I know that uh, you don't have Reverend in front of yours, but you are deaconess right now, commissioned at that church. Yep. So talk to us just a little bit before we wrap up about um, kind of that role and how you came to just begin serving in that particular role. So it's interesting. Um, a few years ago, I, for reasons unrelated to the diaconate, visited all of the PCA English speaking PCA church websites in the United States. Wow. Um, I was doing a, a project on their blogs because I was curious about how different churches use their website to communicate with their people. Cause I was, I was formerly an intern 
at my church. Um, and I was hoping to do stuff with like the blog at our church. So I was curious what other churches did, but as a part of that process, I ended up looking at leadership pages and I saw Mm -hmm. that it's very, very uncommon for PCA churches to have women on their diaconate. Yeah. So I feel really grateful to be at a church that, um, has opportunities for women to serve in that way. Mm-hmm. I had been doing a lot of different kinds of service um, at Grace, and um, I think I was interested in the role again, sort of because I'm interested in um, people who are marginalized, issues right. of mercy and justice. Um, and one of the things that the Book of Church Order says that deacons especially are to do is to be friends to any who are in distress. That's right. To the friendless. That's right. And I'm the deacon most likely to quote the Book of Church Order. <laughs> I love it. I <laughs> love it. You're just a true scholar. I love really it. Are. <laughs> um, but like that was actually one of the really compelling parts of it. I went back and forth about it because I I feel like I have. Um, I feel like I have gifts that overlap with gifts that elders have, mm-hmm. and I like teaching and I love praying for people. And, um, I used to be, um, I mean, I grew up in a church where women preached and women mm-hmm. were up front. And, um, so I grew up in an egalitarian, um, church environment. Um, and I was kind of like, I don't really know what I think about this. And then in the past, like five years or so have, um, become complementarian after doing more investigation into it. But there was, I remember there was this one point where I was talking to a friend and crying. Cause I was like, no, but I want to be the person who gets to pray with people and teach them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like, maybe I don't want to do this other thing over here. And then that's when I saw the thing about being a friend to the friendless and people who are in distress. And I thought like that feels like a good place for me to put my gifts as well. And just because I put my gifts there doesn't mean that I can't use my other gifts else. That's right. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I'm involved in the diaconate. I've been on the diaconate for um, I want to say three years. Okay. Okay. Um, And some of the things that I particularly care about in that role are liaising with community groups and helping mm-hmm. community groups think about how they can care well for their members That's great. who are in distress and uh, how they can um, encourage their members to pursue service opportunities in their communities. Mm. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, J- Janelle, I know it's, it's getting to be about that time. We're going to have to mm-hmm. wrap up. It's just so much more we could talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before you wrap this up, Janelle, though, I I do just, you know, want to make another plug um, uh, to maybe pastors that are listening, other church leaders that are listening, that um, Alicia is obviously a very uh, gifted, uh, you know, using the church tradition I came from, anointed Mm, um, young young woman of the Lord. Uh, Mm -hmm. But guess what? There's there's more of them. Uh, there's more leashes um, are in the pew and um, what they're waiting for is for you as leaders, for us as leaders, as a fellow TE to make clear paths for their gifts to not only be recognized, but to be cultivated in the ways that God wants them to be cultivated Mm -hmm. such that they can actually be this 
this bastion of gift to not only the local church and not only to the tra our particular tradition and denomination, but to the global church as well. And I just feel like if nothing else, Alicia, you are a living, breathing, walking testimony mm -hmm. for that reality. And uh, man, I'm praising the Lord this evening. Uh, for that testimony um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, from you. So thank you, Alicia. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. This is encouraging for me in a lot of ways and convicting, like I said earlier, for me in a lot of ways, even when you were talking about, you know, being in Asia and there are times where at, as somebody worshiping in the church here, I find myself complaining about things, but yet people over there are just happy that they're even able to worship mm. God in this space, yeah. you know, Lord, and that's mercy. just, that really just cuts me to the heart in a lot of ways. Mm. So I appreciate you sharing that part of your story. Um, there's so much more that we could talk about with yeah. you. There really is. Uh, but you know, we, we are confined by time. Um, but Alicia, I want you to, uh, to provide you with an opportunity to, to share any last closing things, to let people know how they can get your book, to let people know how they can follow you along. I know you have, I, you might be thinking through another book in the future. Maybe I read that somewhere. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> you can talk about that or even ways that they can follow along with your, um, the, the writing that you do for United We Pray or anything else. So, so uh, share um, with us some stuff. Uh, so I write for a variety of places, but the place where you can find most of my writing is on my blog, which is feetcrymercy.com. Um, um, I write a lot about race and singleness and um, what I'm learning in seminary, uh, other faith things on my blog. Um, and I am working on a second book called Feet Cry Mercy, mm -hmm. <laughs> which should be out uh, late next year. Um, but wow. invitations okay. to abundance, um, is available now wherever books are sold. And, um, you can also follow me on, uh, Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is speak cry mercy. <laughs> and, uh, I tweet about my faith and Korean lessons and, uh, <laughs> other random bits of life. So. Yes. Good. Thank you for that. And I'll put this in our, um, our little show notes to feet cry mercy, where people can follow along, uh, with you. Thank you so much, Alicia, for being on the show. This is Thanks such a treat. Honestly, yes, yes. This is good. No this fun. is good. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Charles McKnight joining me on the mic. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. <laughs> and of course, thank you to our listeners. Between the Pew is brought to you by African American Ministries. To follow AAM, be sure to visit our website at aampca.org and follow us on social media at aampca. See y'all next time. <laughs> <laughs>